All right. Well, it just hit me while I was over there watching this video that um, for some reason Jesus on that video looks a lot like Barry Gibbs from uh, the Bee Gees. So I don't know what that was about. Uh, if you don't know who they are, ask one of the people that stood up for the honoring of the grandparents. Uh, they will tell you exactly who that is. Um, if you if you were here when we opened the service, welcome. My name is uh, Chris. I'm the youth pastor here. Uh, pastor Greg, Pastor Stacy are down in Southern California watching their boy uh, play his first game of uh, football, starting quarterback for his school. And uh, so we uh, we are, are uh, lucky that we get to uh, send them and still have church. Uh, so it's a good sign of their leadership that they can leave and still have people that won't wreck the, wreck the ship. Um, hopefully, I mean, then we're not done with the service, so uh, I, could, I could ruin that. But uh, we're talking about, uh, we're going through the series called The Story. We've been going through it uh, most of the year. And the story is really just taking a broad view of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelations. The first part of the year before the summer, we took the Old Testament, those uh, first uh, 40-something books of the Bible, um, and we looked at those books, and then uh, last week we started, um, we started the New Testament, and we've been talking last week, this week, and the next four weeks about uh, the star of the story, his name is Jesus, and uh, Jesus is uh, the reason we are all here today. Jesus is the reason the Old Testament was written. Jesus is the reason the New Testament was written. Jesus is the reason that we gather together because it's through his gifts, it's through his, uh, his sacrifice on the cross that we can know him, that we can have relationship with him. And so it's a, it's a real privilege to be able to talk about the man who, uh, who we love. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the early part of his life. And if you could turn with me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Once you find that, you can maybe uh, skip forward a little bit to John chapter 14. If you, uh, if you mastered the uh, speed flipping in children's church. Find books real fast. But Matthew chapter 6, uh, my incredibly beautiful wife referenced it a second ago during the, uh, the offering, but it's what we call the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 9 says, Pray like this, Our Father, who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it's done in heaven. Bring your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. If you want to flip over to me before we pray or do anything like that, turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 11 and 12. It's also going to be on the screen. Jesus says this. He says, Trust me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on account of the works themselves. And then he says this incredible, incredible statement that I think we overlook so many times in our life. He says, I assure you that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. They will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I assure you that whoever believes in me We'll do the works that I do, and even greater, greater works. Would you, uh, would you pray with me and get into the word? Father, 
it is, a, it is a very hard thing to believe that we could do the works that Jesus did. It's very hard to believe as we read through the Gospels, even in the early of the accounts of his life, that the things that he did, you can do through us. So Father, we absolutely need the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word to transform our mind, to transform our heart, so that we can begin to live like Jesus and share his love. God, help us today as we go to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week, last week, uh, my wife and I got the privilege to uh, go to uh, go to Nebraska. I know it's weird to say privilege in Nebraska all in the same sentence, but, uh, but it's a great, it's a great state. And, uh, we went there, uh, speaking of grandparents day, we went there because my grandpa was turning 80 years old. And so we wanted to honor my grandpa. We wanted to spend some time with him. It had been a decade since I had been there. And, um, we, I did what, what any good husband would do when, um, when th- my wife is meeting a new part of my family for the first time. And that is, I ran through the family tree and all the complexities and all the thorns that are growing out of the tree and things like that uh, to to warn her to prepare her things like that and um, so we got to we got to Nebraska and uh, we started to meet this is my dad's side of the family my dad is one of three and so uh, he has him his brother Paul and his brother Bob and um, and so I was I was kind of trying to tell her here's here's Bob and his kids and here's Paul and his kids and and um, we started to just hang out with them. And during the birthday party, we had a uh, family pictures, you know, where, where you have to drag everybody and you got to group them one by one, generation by generation, and all of that different stuff. And 90% of the people don't want to take a picture. And so you have to kind of have the army general that's going to rule the thing. And there got to this point where it was just the grandkids and my grandpa sitting at, uh, at, on this bench. It was outside of my, uh, my uncle owns a bar and grill, like a sports bar. And, and so we were outside on this bench outside of there. And there's this brick wall. It was like the worst scenery ever, but that's what we had. And uh, all, the grandpa- all the grandkids and my grandpa. And I was talking to, my, uh, I was talking to Katie afterwards, and she... She made a comment about the, the, my, uh, me and my cousins, and she just looked at me and says, you can tell without ever knowing exactly who each kid belongs to when you look at this spread of, I think it was like 12 grandkids. Because they started to take on the characteristic of their father. You could tell who Bob's kids were. They were kind of the, uh, the frat boys of the crew, because my uncle was a, a big sports, is a big sports fanatic, hence owning a sports bar and uh, playing football in, in high school and things like that. Uh, you can tell who his kids were. You could tell him who my Uncle Paul's kids were. They were more of the, uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's still a term, like the motorheads, like the, the, the people who work on cars and love cars and things like that. And, and, uh, and then there was my dad who escaped Grand Island, Nebraska when I was eight months old to California. And you could tell who the two California kids were <laughs> uh, immediately. Because we all take on the characteristics of our Father. And when we come to Christ, something very similar happens. We are put from our, uh, the family of this world, the family of our origin. We, are, we all take on kind of the characteristics of this world because of the sin nature that we're born with. When we start to put our faith in Christ and follow him, as we spend more time in his family, we begin to take on the characteristics of our Father. People should be able to tell they're, they're definitely not like this family. 
There, something is different about this family. And one of the things that we need to recognize when we begin to follow Jesus is we should be taking on his characteristics. We should be ter- taking on not just his mo- morality. Because I think, I think in America, a lot of times we want, we want to focus on taking up the morality of Jesus and becoming very good people, but we, we fail to adopt the ministry aspect of Jesus' life. We fail to take on his works and continue on the works of his kingdom. We want to adopt his morality, but not his ministry. And as we begin to look at the life of Jesus, especially this early life this week, we need to recognize that Jesus was fully God, but he was also, while he was on earth, he was fully man. He emptied himself, and we'll look at that in a second, but he emptied himself of and submitted his, uh, his, uh, his, his God-given attributes. He submitted them to the Father as he came to earth, and he began to be fully God and fully man. And if we forget that he's fully man also, we fail to be able to learn from his life. Suddenly, he just becomes an inspirational figure that we can run to. He becomes our superhero and not the model that we should take up our life and put it up against. We are, we are not just to make Christ a superhero that cannot be touched with the this temptations and the hardships that we face ourselves. Because the reason that he came to earth, and we talked about this last week, the reason he came from heaven to earth is so that he could be touched with the afflictions and the temptations that we faced so that we can see that we can overcome through Christ. Not just in his morality, but in his ministry. And so today we're going to look at some of the, the ways that he was before he stepped into his ministry, the ways he was molded into the minister that he became. And we're doing this so that we can begin to apply that to our lives because we will, if we want to become like Jesus in his finished product, we have to go through the process that he went through as being fully man to become the minister that he was on earth. Because like we just read, we are to do the works of Christ and even greater works. But we have to go through the process that he went through, if we want to become the person that he became. So we want to look a little bit at some of the, uh, some of the things that he went through early in his life. Number one, and this starts, this starts in heaven before he ever came to earth. Jesus humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 through 7. Philippians chapter 2 says this. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he was not considered being equal with God, something to exploit. Now, we are not made in the form of God. But 
but, but the author, Paul, is saying that there is some humility that we can begin to learn from in the example of Christ. He says, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. Now, Christ, before he came to earth, sat on the throne in heaven with the adoration of all of the angels in heaven. He had all of the attributes of God. He was, he knew everything. We call this his omniscience. He knew everything from the beginning of the earth to the end of the earth, from the beginning of eternity past to eternity future. He knew it all. And not only did he know it all, but he was all power. He is not just the strongest uh, God on earth. He is strength. When we say that, when we say that he's stronger than the devil, we're actually doing ourselves a little bit of a disservice, because he's not just stronger than the devil, he actually created the devil and has him on these little puppet strings, because he is strength. And not only is he strength, but he's everywhere. And all of him is everywhere, all at once. These are just kind of the, what we would call the, the essential attributes of who God is. These, this is who he is. He's, he's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's everywhere, all the time, all at once. And he left his throne in heaven, and he submitted all of that to his father and said, there is, there is a greater cause than me sitting on my throne. There is a greater purpose than me just sitting on my throne. I must go and I must die and become the sacrifice so that we can have relationship again with this humanity that we created. And so he himself got off of his throne and came to earth and he emptied himself. He emptied himself so that, so that we could be saved. You know what, I, you know what I, I, I take from this? I take from this that we must give up our right to be right so that others could be saved. I think, I think we need to give up our right to be the strongest in the room, the most correct in the room. I think we need to sometimes give up our right to hit share every time we see an article, a getcha article on Facebook so that people would listen to us. I think sometimes we have to, we have to begin to give up our right to be right so that people can be saved. Cause here's what I know. If we derive our sense of self from our ability to be admired, to be correct and to be understood, if we derive our identity from that, if we derive our sense of self from that, we stand in the way of becoming more like Christ. Cause there was times when he appeared weak, even though he was all strength. And there was a time where he did not answer the questions that were asked him, even though he knows everything from eternity past to eternity future. Because there was wisdom involved. And wisdom and humility, wisdom and humbling ourselves are so intricately connected that he, he modeled for us, not just here in this, in this instance, but all throughout his life, that we have to begin to humble ourselves. We don't always have to be right or the strongest or the most put together in order to lead people back to him. We have to humble ourselves. We have to marry our humanity with God's power everywhere we go. Because we absolutely, hopefully know how weak we are at times. 
But sometimes, even though we know we're weak, we want to present that we're strong. And we forget that the only way to actually be strong is to be weak. And then God's strength becomes our, our, our uh, flows through our weakness into the situations that we find ourselves the weakest at. But it takes humility. Number two, that we learn from Christ as he's beginning to be molded into the minister that he, uh, that we know him as to do the works of Christ and all of these things. One of the process is he has to be willing to be misunderstood. Christ was all over the place willing to be misunderstood. And if you have your Bible or you can write it down or you can look at the screen, uh, Matthew chapter three, Matthew chapter three. There's this instance that I think we overlook sometimes. It's a lot more powerful than we give it credit for. And it's, it's the moment that Jesus was baptized. Sometimes we just float past it. It was a good thing. We should all be baptized. Cool. Thanks, Jesus, for being baptized. But in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, it says, At the time Jesus came to Galilee at the Jordan River, so that uh, Jesus... Or, at that time Jesus came to, from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need, you to, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me. And Jesus answered, just, I stand in awe at the language that Jesus uses at this moment. John, his cousin, who he created, he had a hand. He in heaven knew the end from the beginning. He knew John's life. He knew all of his weaknesses, all of his strength. He, he approaches John and he says, will you allow me to be baptized now? It's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. Jesus not only had to humble himself by becoming a human, he had to humble himself by submitting to those he created. Jesus was willing to let others lead him for the greater good. That blows my mind. Jesus allowed fallen man to at times minister to him, to lead him. Can you imagine? Like, you're God. It's hard enough for us to, like, to let somebody younger than us minister to us. I know this because I stand up here from time to time and I feel the, the, uh, the weight of speaking to people that are, uh, you know, twice, three times my, probably not three times at this age, but uh, t- at least twice my age. And, and I understand, like, it can be difficult. But can you imagine being God? Coming to your cousin and saying, will you baptize me? Baptism is a repentance from sin. Jesus had no sin. And yet he was willing to stand in line and wait while people walked by him. And they just assume it's another sinful person repenting of their sins. And Jesus Jesus didn't pipe up once and say, I don't have the sin. I'm just here to help you. He never once piped up and said, 
I know I'm standing here, but like I got to explain myself for just a minute. Like I'm standing here to fulfill all righteousness. Let me give you a little Bible lesson and just tell you all of the reasons. that I, No, he just stood there still and let others assume that he had sin in his life in order for him to be able to identify with the people that he would later save. And he didn't care about being understood. He didn't care that other people would start to think about what, he, what might have been in his past. He didn't care about what other people thought about all of the different implications of him standing in this line and, 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 and kind of by, by default admitting he's a sinful human being and then going up to his cousin who he created and just willingly being put into the river and being brought back up. He was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to take the repentant position when he didn't have to. You ever been um, you ever been caught in an awkward aisle in the grocery store and then somebody uh, somebody walks by you like you ever been caught in the medical aisle and you're like by the foot cream and then that person walks by and like you're near the foot cream and then they walk by and you're like no I don't have any problems I'm just walking through and it's like that awkward moment where you hope that they don't think that you need what you're in the aisle for and uh, like. That's just a small glimpse of what Jesus was going through at this minute because he was willing to be misunderstood. He was willing to stand in the awkward aisle and allow people to think whatever they wanted for you and for me. Here's what this tells me. Is, number one is that we must be ministered to even if at times someone you could, uh, even if by at times it's by somebody you could look down on. You have the opportunity to. You know more than them. You're older than them. You have more life experience than them. You have, uh, you have more wisdom than them. You have more money than them. You have more whatever it is. You can fill in the blank. But what Jesus modeled to us is that at times, even though we want to assume we have it together, we have to allow ourselves to be ministered to. Are, are we teachable? Sometimes... We want to appear like we have it all together because if we don't appear like we have it all together, we by default are assuming that people are putting us in the same category as every other ignorant person on planet Earth and we don't want to be associated with them. So we put on the facade that we have it all together. We know everything. We, we make all the right decisions. Our family is just the greatest. And so we at times, in order to cover up the fact that we need to learn, we need to grow, we need to be more like Jesus. We stand and we say, I got it all together. I don't need church. I don't need life groups. I don't really even need friends. I don't need a community. I don't need your assistance. I've got this. Because we don't want to appear like we don't. Jesus was just, he was so confident in himself. And for us, we don't have to be confident in ourselves. We just have to be confident in him through us that we're okay with being misunderstood. What I also get from this is we have to be willing to be misunderstood in order to identify with those who we want to share the gospel with. The people who don't know Jesus don't want to hear about Jesus from somebody they assume has it all together. 
because if they assume you have it all together, if they assume I have it all together, they're going to think, well, I don't have it all together, so that must not work for me. Because most of the world thinks that we have to have it all together before we come to Christ, and that is the antithesis of the gospel. We can never have it all together. And if we want to reach the world for, with the gospel, if we want to share the, if we want to share the gospel with a broken and a hurting world, we have to be willing to be misunderstood by admitting that we don't have it all together. That's the only way that they're going to hear it. Jesus, this wasn't the only time Jesus was misunderstood. John, the guy who just baptized him, declared that he's the son of God. And a few chapters later, he's going to send his little minions from, because uh, John's going to be in prison. He's going to send his, his friends over to Jesus and say, are you really the guy who you say you are? Because I'm in prison right now and I don't understand what you're doing. His own, his own cousin begins to misunderstand him. His parents and his family comes up to him and says, you're out of your mind. He's rejected in his own town by simply saying, this is just a carpenter's son. He's a good teacher and all, but he's just a carpenter's son, not really the guy he says he is. At one time, by the religious people, by the pastors and the priests of the time, he's said to be minister, uh, a minister of Satan. And he's just cool with it. You say what you want, I know who I am. He's okay with being misunderstood. You know what he didn't do when all of this stuff happened? He didn't go grab his he didn't go grab a new PR agent. He didn't he didn't try to fix his public relations. He didn't update his Instagram or his Facebook. He didn't start tweeting better tweets and clarifying all the things about him and he didn't get a, on national TV and and state his stance on all of the different things that he believed. He just lived his life. And here's why, and this point three, is because he was able to receive God's affirmation. Right after this, Matthew, still in Matthew three, right after it says that John agreed to baptize Jesus, it says, when Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was opened to him and he saw the spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. A voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I dearly love and I find happiness in him. This is a critical turning point in Jesus' life. He is about to go from Jesus the carpenter to Jesus the minister. He is about to declare exactly who he's known he was to be for years to a world that would not understand him. But he hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't ministered, no miracles, nothing. Right at that moment is when his father came up from heaven and said, this is my son who I love. I'm well pleased with him. Before he ever became the minister that we know him to be, for those three and a half years, he first had moments where he allowed the God, he, the God in heaven to tell him exactly who he was and what he thought about him. And if we are to go into our city and begin to tell people about Jesus, we first have to know what he thinks about us. And we have to receive his affirmation. We have to receive his love. We have to minister from a place 
of fulfillment and not for a place of fulfillment. We have to follow Jesus from a place from from a place of I know what he thinks about me. I know that he loves me. I know that he loves my family. I know that he loves this world. I'm not trying to earn this. I'm not trying to do something so that he can recognize and see me. I'm not trying to get some promotion from God. I just know that he loves me and I just want to tell other people about this. When we minister to other people from a place of fulfillment and not for a place of fulfillment, it will change the message that we preach because now it's a message of grace. Now it's a message of you don't have to earn it. Now it's a message of you don't have to do anything to deserve this. He already sent his son to die for you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do anything to deserve it. He already did it. But if we are trying to give a message of grace while trying to uh, be fulfilled by the ministry that God gave us, you're going to and we are going to enter into times of frustration and confusion and disillusionment. And that's where people begin to burn out. And that's where people people stop praying. And that's where people think that this this book is just irrelevant because it's no longer a love letter. And prayer is no longer meeting with your father and your friend. It's all a bunch of duty. And it's all a bunch of, I have to do this. Jesus, not just here, but over and over again, received the father's love and then ministered to people out of that. And then immediately, almost immediately after that, number four is that he, he resisted private temptation. Jesus was led to fast. Jesus was led to fast right before he goes into his ministry. One of the things that fasting does is it reveals our weakness. Because... <laughs> I don't know if you're like me, but when you're hungry, you're grumpy, and you really need Jesus. And when you're hungry, you're weak, and you really need Jesus. And Jesus was led to, to fast for 40 days in the middle of the blistering hot desert, where at times it can get up to 117 degrees without shade, without shelter, and he's sitting there with nothing but him and his father. And it's at that moment that Satan comes to tempt him with evil. Because he always comes when we're weakest. And if we don't know when we're weakest, and if we don't know what our weaknesses are, we probably are ignorant to how he's going to come after us. Jesus was at his weakest moment as being fully human, and it's that moment that Satan begins to tempt him with evil. Matthew chapter 4, it says that then the Spirit led Jesus to the wilderness so that the devil might tempt him. And after Jesus had fasted 40 days, 40 nights, he was starving. Like that, that's the understatement of the Bible. He was so hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, since you are God's son, command these stones to become bread. Temptation one is just fulfill your natural desires. Fulfill the things that you can justify in the moment. Fulfill the things that just come naturally. There's a natural desire. First uh, John chapter uh, chapter two verse fifteen through seventeen calls this the lust of the flesh. 
And then immediately after that, Jesus comes back and says, it's written, people won't live by bread, but by every word spoken by God. And after the devil brought him into the holy city and stood at the highest point, stood him at the highest point of the temple, he said to him, since you are God's son, throw yourself down for it's written, I will command my angels concerning you and they will take up, uh, they will take you up in their hands so that you won't hit your foot against a stone. Temptation number two that Jesus went through and we will go through is that we will try to steal the glory that was never meant for us. Jesus was asked to do this thing that it kind of put God on the spot, but really to kind of make himself out to be a superhero. Throw yourself down. Angels are going to come. It's going to be a great show and that you're going to get. But there are times where we are just to be kind of low key. In fact, we're never supposed to steal the glory that was meant for God. And that's what, that's what Satan was trying to do. And, and in that, first, that same chapter, in 1 John chapter 2, John would call this the lust of the eyes. Desiring things that look most appealing. Desiring things that will appeal to our nature. The lust of the eyes. What do you see that you desire that was never meant for you? Is it fame? Is it fortune? Is it stability? Is it peace? Is it, there are certain things that out of the context of God's provision and out of the context of God's plan, certain things were never meant for us. And we are tempted to go after them all the time, especially when we want to actually reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he was tempted with a glory that was not meant for him. And, and lastly, he was tempted with Get back to here. It says, Then the devil brought him to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, I'll give you all of these if you bow down and worship me. And Satan, or Jesus responds, Go away, Satan, because it's written, You will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and the angels came and took care of him. Sometimes we're tempted to start telling God what to do. Sometimes we're tempted to pray prayers that are more like demands. And if God doesn't fulfill these things, I'm probably not going to serve him anymore. Telling God what to do. There's a temptation to do this. Jesus is faced with it. We're faced with it. And this is where humility again takes place. Where we just say, God, let your will be done. I'm going to step back. The temptation that Jesus faced was not just about morality. We think at times that Jesus, he, he withstood these temptations and so it made him a moral person. The temptations that Jesus faced and the temptations we face are not just about our morality, it's about our influence. If Jesus fails one of these tests, he falls into sin and he puts himself out of the running to die on our behalf for our salvation, taking on the punishment of our sins upon him. These temptations are about his influence, not his morality. 
Our ability to withstand temptation is not just so that we can become more moral and more, uh, more of a good person. Our ability to withstand temptation, no matter what age we are at, is so that we can have the influence and the leading of the Holy Spirit so that we can begin to tell people about Christ and Christ's anointing will flow through us so that it can reach the world that desperately needs him. So we don't just withstand temptation for ourselves. Otherwise, it can get pretty futile. We withstand temptation because of the people that are on the other side of the church walls who are sitting in their homes right now wondering if they'll ever be fulfilled, wondering if they'll ever be loved, wondering if there's a God in heaven, wondering if there's anybody else who knows the pain that they've gone through. And we are the ones who have the influence of the Holy Spirit to go and tell them. But we have to... We have to adopt Christ's morality and his ministry because they begin to inform one another. And last but not least, after he goes and he withstands these temptations, he's released into ministry and all he does is he starts to look for somebody to serve. Once Jesus is released from uh, the Father to go into the world and reveal who he was, he simply begins to look around and respond to the Father and say, what would you have me to do? He meets, he goes to a party. We saw it on the video. First miracle he ever does. He's just at a party and his mom comes up to him and says, hey, uh, party's dying down. Uh, we want to turn it up to 11. Can't do that without wine. Could you just help us out here? First miracle, just, he turns water into wine. It's weird. Like, why, would, why would he choose that? Why would he go fly in the face of every... Uh, every Baptist in the world and make alcohol for his first miracle. <laughs> you know what I think? And I was thinking about this this morning. I don't have this in my notes. I was thinking about this this morning. I think he turned water into wine to signify the water that was spilt from his side when he's standing on the cross and he's stabbed in the side to solidify his death on our behalf. And it says that water and then blood comes out of his side. He's pointing to it. Because all of his miracles points to what he would eventually do on the cross. And then he goes and he finds this demonized man. If I could get Allie to come up here, we're going we're gonna to end here. He finds this demonized man and he prays for him and, and he heals him. And you would think that after these two miracles, especially this big show, this big healing a demonized man. A demon-possessed man comes into a church service. He lays hands on him. He prays for him. You would think after a big miracle like that, he'd like call up TBN. He'd get on TV and he'd start to start his ministry. And he'd send out flyers and he'd send out all these different things. And you know what he did? Probably the biggest miracle on earth. I can say this because she's not here. He found his mother-in-law. Or Peter's mother-in-law. Peter, Peter comes up to him and he says, Hey, my mother-in-law has a headache and a fever. Can you just go pray for her? Now, some of us would say, I'm not about those little things anymore. I'm about the big miracles. 
Find me the demonized man. Call me when Peter's mother-in-law is possessed with a demon. Call me when she dies and then I'll raise her from the dead. But no, he goes and he just prays for the simple headache. And he heals her. And then he goes a couple more, put a couple more steps and he finds a leper. And he does the unthinkable. He raises his hand, he puts his hand on the leper and he says, be healed. He risks his own well-being. Again, he risks being misunderstood because you touch a leper, you catch leprosy, you can no longer be around people anymore. And he risks that. Jesus is constantly risking his reputation for our behalf. And I think we need to do the same for other people. If we want to do the works that Jesus did and even greater than those, we have to be willing to risk our reputation to look around us, whether the problem is big or whether the problem is small. And we have to be willing to speak up and we have to be willing to lay our hands on people and we have to be able to believe that greater works than Jesus has done. And when he speaks of greater works, he's not talking about greater than dying on the cross for our salvation. He's putting that aside and just saying, numerically, across the board, for the rest of humanity, you'll do way more than what uh, the three and a half years that one man could do on planet Earth. You are going to do miracle after miracle. You are going to lead this person to Jesus after this person to Jesus. You're going to lead family families to Christ. And he's not just talking about people that stand on a pulpit with a funny little microphone and talks to a bunch of people who know who Jesus is. He's talking about all of us getting off of our seats, going into our world and believing that God has called us, has commanded us and has empowered us to reach people who nobody else thought that they could reach because that is who Jesus is going after. Jesus does not go after the people who think that they have it all together. They are called the Pharisees. He had some words to say to them. He goes to the leper. He goes to the little child and and says, Would you come and sit on my lap and let me tell you who I am? He goes to the widow and says, Thank you for giving your two mites. I know you don't have much, but thank you. Let me tell you about who I am. He goes to strangers walking on a road who are disillusioned with who they thought God was. And he says, let me teach you about who I am. And then he just looks at the rest of his people, just like he looks at us today, and he says, and he, he says, go and do likewise. Follow me. And he doesn't say it in, an, in a condemning way. I don't, I don't think he does. I don't think he's sitting in heaven saying, what, what are you doing with your life? Get off your butt. Stop being late. I don't think he does that. I think Jesus is a lot like, like the coaches that we saw 
yesterday, if you were watching football, and like, I'm not a football person, but I found myself watching three different football games yesterday. It was ridiculous. Like, I don't know why, because LC was at my house, but uh, watching, watching these coaches, and it was the moments where they were down and the moments they were out that the coach gets them all together, and he doesn't condemn them. He starts to rally them together, say, you can do better. You're better than this. You have more skill than you think. You have more strategy than you think. You have more position than you think. And he's, I think God's in heaven looking down on us saying, you're stronger than you think. You're wiser than you know. You have the power of the Holy Spirit. You're positioned in the right place in your family, in your workplace, and all over the city. You are positioned well to win. And what we learn from Jesus' early ministry is we have to go and we have to humble ourselves at times. We have to put ourselves under authority and, and people at times to learn and to know that we don't have it all together, but we can begin to grow. And we have to learn to receive the Father's love and let Him tell us about, uh, tell us about who, it, who He thinks that we are. And, and then we just go and we find people to minister to no matter what you have done. Because he loves you and he loves them. Would you bow your heads for me just a moment? Father, I do 100% believe that we in this room are called to minister to the lost. Whether we've ever done it before, whether we've done it and failed, whether we're pretty successful at it at this moment, I believe you're calling us all to a, a higher level. God, you said to pray that your kingdom would come. And I know that the only way it's going to come is through us. So God, I pray you would begin to you begin to open up our hearts so that it would begin to be molded more like Jesus. Pray that you would speak to our passions. Cause our passions to be what you're passionate about, God. I pray our, our priorities would be whittled down to what you care about, God. If you're in this place, then you would, you would say, I've never had a relationship with Jesus When we got to that part where it says that Jesus received the affirmation of God, and you would say to yourself, well, of course he did. He's Jesus, but he knows who I am. He would never say that. Let me tell you that you're wrong. Jesus loves you. Jesus sent, Jesus came to earth so that he could die on a cross so that you could have relationship with Jesus. He was risen again from the cross, defeating hell and death and ascending to heaven so that you could have relationship with him. And if you're in this place and you don't have a relationship with him or you've walked away from Jesus and you would say to yourself, I want to put my faith back into this, into Jesus. I want to put my faith back on Jesus or I, I want to, I want to have a relationship with him. If you're in this place and and you are somebody who wants to start a relationship with him or come back to him, all you need to do is in your own heart say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I put my faith in you. That's it. It's a free gift. Because he loves you and he loves us. Father, this week I pray 
you would equip us to reach more people, to speak up when we want to be silent, to lay hands when we, don't, when we want to pray in private, to know that we are equipped with the Holy Spirit at all times. God, thank you for that. Thank you for these people. Thank you for who they, who they represent, Lord, in all the workplaces and families, Lord. And I pray that you would use them this week. In Jesus' name, would you with me say a big amen? Amen. Well, stand to your feet for just a moment. Why don't you find somebody that's right around you? Maybe give them a high five or a handshake. Say, I hope you have a good week. And uh, maybe tell them that Jesus loves them. Start with the boldness here in church and then take it.